1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review podcast. I'm Paul Spataro, and today I am joined by what is the, the man who's quickly becoming my semi-regular, non-permanent co-host, J. David Weider. Hello, welcome. I'm glad to be back. Well, it's always good to have you back, Dave. Uh, and we're going off the beaten path once again, because now we, we just keep ranging out there. And, and we, we keep ranging out there with movies with multiple sequels. <laughs> so <laughs> it definitely opens the door to all sorts of future uh, episodes. But today we're going to look at the 1931 classic Frankenstein. And this is, you know, I mean, 
I, I'll be surprised if they're actually, you know what? I'm going to take it back. I was going to be, I was going to say, I'd be surprised if there's a lot of people who haven't seen this, but I'm sure there's a lot of people who haven't, you know, it's, it's old enough and there's enough other media out there that it may have escaped a lot of people's viewing. Uh, I'll be surprised if people aren't somewhat familiar with it, but they may not have actually ever seen the actual product. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're familiar with it, it whether they know it or not, but yeah, it wasn't widely available until about a decade ago. When the legacy collection started coming out, they really started pushing the Universal Monsters again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, uh, I had seen this as a fairly young kid, uh, probably single digits. Uh, you know, one Saturday night, you know, when they would show like the, uh, the the horror movies on, you know, on either Channel Nine or Channel Eleven at like eleven thirty on Saturday nights. And I remember sitting with my two brothers and watching this movie, and there were points in it that we were, well, that I was scared, but there were also points that we were actually, you know, openly laughing at some of the scenes. Uh, but I, it, it made an impression on me, and I think looking back on it, I, I, it, it laid some groundwork for monster movies. I was going to say horror movies, but not so much horror movies as monster movies for me. True. And well, and it, it's hard to the, look at it sometimes. I'm sorry, Dave. Uh, it's it's hard to look at it sometimes through the eyes of it being the beginning of things. Because when you look at what they can do special effects wise now and just camera wise now, uh, this this may seem a little rudimentary to people. But if you look at it compared to what they were able to do at the time, and you see, like I say, the groundwork, I think there's a lot of groundbreaking things in this movie. And mm-hmm. all that said, why don't you give me a little bit of your history with it? I became familiar with it through the Crestwood Monster books, which, if you're not familiar with that, those are the orange books you'd find a lot of school libraries uh, that mm-hmm. would do, like, Wolfman, Frankenstein. And he, I mean, if the monster captured my imagination, I would have nightmares with the monster in it. Not because he, it was just, whatever was happening in the dream, I would be coming close to a conclusion, and then out of nowhere comes the monster. <laughs> so he definitely captures. <laughs> it was kind of like, uh, what's his name, the uh, the magician? Uh... <laughs> Which magician? Doug, Doug Henning. <laughs> Doug Henning. Out of nowhere, Doug Henning. Yeah, instead of the, it's the monster. Out of nowhere, the Frankenstein monster. Uh, but I think I finally watched it. There was a uh, syndication package, and it's probably how you saw it, where it would be so many monster movies in a, in a lump sum, and that would be sent out to different you know stations, and they would play these sporadically. So I remember the Wolfman I saw first, and then Frankenstein. And, you know, it, like I said, you're, you're probably aware of this movie, even if you don't know it, because you were talking about special effects. The makeup effect, the look of Frankenstein, completely invented for this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's not true to the, to the novel. Not at all. <laughs> but but it's, it's, in and of itself, it's a movie that you know, has, has kept me invested in the Frankenstein franchise ever since. Frankly, it has so become my definition of Frankenstein that in more modern days when they've tried to make the Frankenstein monster more articulate – uh, and more human looking, it's fallen flat on me to a large extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of a movie that I, I, you know, a movie that I know most people don't like, but uh, but I've got a fondness for, is uh, Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing movie. And the biggest problem I have with that movie is the way the Frankenstein monster is portrayed. Mm. But it's a, bit, it's a little bit closer to the book, but yeah, it's it's very it, different from what we've come to define as Frankenstein's monster. Well, that's and that's exactly it. It is closer to what's in the book, and that's why I shouldn't have any kind of issue with it. But I just, I, I've just got such a fondness for this portrayal of the monster that it's hard for me to see it 
in other, you know, other ways. Although I remember around, I think it's around 1973 or so, uh, they had a two-part TV movie called Frankenstein, The True Story. And it's really based on Mary Shelley's novel. Mm -hmm. And Michael Sarazen played the monster. And when he's first brought to life and, you know, integrated a little bit, he, he's actually like a gentleman, you know, in, in regular clothes and whatever. But over time, his body starts to deteriorate. And that's when he starts becoming more monster-like. Yeah. Which is, you know, and, and I have a fondness for that. And I, I guess it is really a matter of when I saw it. Because I was, you know, like I said, in single digits when I saw this movie. And then when I saw that one, I was probably 10. Uh, so, you know, they, they made an impression on me and I was absolutely willing to accept those, uh, other versions of it. I'm, I'm, I'm open-minded and I try to watch them, but I, it's really just a matter of, I prefer this look. Yeah. And I don't judge that. I love this look. I mean, I have a, uh, 110 Mezco 110 Frankenstein that's monster that sits on my desk at all times. So Boris Karloff is a constant companion. And, and one of the beauties of this is that he could be portrayed by, you know, numerous people. Uh, you know, Boris Karloff, obviously, and then, you know, Bella Lugosi did it. He was the strangest looking because his face, he's got more of a round face. So when they put the he- the head, you know, that hat piece, yeah. whatever you want to call it, on him, it, it kind of looked just a little bit strange. And then just, you you know, going on with that word, Glenn Strange, who portrayed it in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein and other movies. And Lon uh, which, Chaney Jr. had one as well. So Yes. But I would say Glenn Strange is probably my most visual image just because I've seen Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein the most of any of these movies uh, that that this particular uh, version of Frankenstein appeared in. Yeah, I mean, I still stick with Karloff because it's just, I love the look of Karloff. He, and, and it's such a neat contrast to who Karloff actually was. Because mm-hmm. yeah, well, he was this very kindly, gentlemanly, you know, kind of guy. And then he's playing this monster with air quotes. Or the Grinch. Or the Grinch, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I don't think I need to really go over the story to speak of. Uh, this movie came out in 1931. So, you know, this is early in the days of talk movies. And you can tell with, I mean, its its predecessor, which was Dracula, was directed by Todd Browning. And Dracula has, it ended up working in the movie's favor, but you could tell Browning was finding his way around the talkies a lot. Yes. And, and you, you know, in that particular movie, there's a lot of silent scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could have had a little dialogue or had, you know, better musical laying. Uh, this one doesn't really, I don't think this one has that problem. No. I, I think, you know, the dialogue is is there. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, to some extent, it a problem with this movie, in my mind, is something that happened after the movie, is a lot of the tropes in it have become stereotypical because they've been just done over and over again but they were original when this movie came out and Mm -hmm. a lot of the elements in this movie and i mostly point my finger at young frankenstein uh have been parodied so now they almost seem silly sometimes when you think about them you know the mob scenes and just you know uh well and and you tend to use the word igor because of young frankenstein but in this movie it's fritz yeah uh you know the the lab assistant uh in particular, the scene when he gets the brain, See, you know, it, it's, it's so, you know, they, they really did it so well in Young Frankenstein. Uh, but it, it's, we're, we're seeing a lot in this movie, again, only 71 minutes long, 
but there's a lot of characterization that's going on, particularly of Victor von Frankenstein and of the monster. And I think I'd like to kind of focus on those a little bit, uh, particularly the monster, but talk about Victor for a moment first. Uh, you know, he, he's an example of unbridled aggression towards discovery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it goes back to what we've talked about before, you know, with the just because you can do something, should you do it uh, from Jurassic Park? Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he gets very ambitious because he's developing this ability to create life. Uh, there's a, a, a line, in, you know, line where he talks about, uh, you know, being God. Now I know what it feels like to be God. Yeah, and you know that apparently the critics were very, very harsh on that. And you got to remember the time this came out. This was 1931. They didn't really cotton to lines like that too much. Well, that scene was actually cut out of many, many prints. Yeah, there were a lot was, of things that were cut out. Yes, there are a lot of scenes too. If if you're familiar with Young Frankenstein, there's a lot of scenes in that that are from The Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So you may be watching this movie waiting for certain things to happen that don't happen. Uh, because of that, uh, I think probably the most common one is the scene with the blind man. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's from the bride of Frankenstein, <laughs> not from this. And it's again, so well parodied by Mel Brooks. You mentioned but, Henry Frankenstein's ego, Henry. I said, Victor, my mistake. Yes. Uh, I, Victor in the book, they changed it to Henry because it's, it was less severe in their terms. This is, this is beautifully brought to us in a vision when they're digging up the grave at the very beginning he literally throws dirt in the Grim Reaper's face because there's a Grim Reaper statue. Mm-hmm. That says everything about the character and his ego. His his ego and his just, again, his just ambition. And uh, I think there's no scene that captures that better than his jubilation when the monster moves. The it's, it's alive, alive, it's alive, yeah. it's alive. You know, Which is just... one of the, the biggest quotes from, from any movie anywhere. Yes. So And, and you know, again... I, I just want to emphasize this movie is only 71 minutes long, so there's so much packed in here. And, you know, at the time it came out, again, there were a lot of potential problems critic-wise uh, because of the subject matter and, and fear of people being, you know, offended by it, that there were scenes cut out of it. So I can only imagine what the running time was at, you know, when it was fully <laughs> edited down. You know, the Universal Collection totally restored a lot of things that were in there, including the opening scene where, uh, where the narr- whoever it is that's narrating it comes out and apologizes <laughs> for anybody who might be offended by the movie. Um, yeah, Edward Van Sloan being as charming as he can be. <laughs> which is not much. Uh, <laughs> oh, now, come on. Edward Van Sloan, I love Edward Van Sloan in this and Dracula, because he plays basically the same character, different accent. All right, I'll, I'll give you. But, uh, yeah, at the, the movie opens, he comes out, he says, how do you do? Mr. Carl Lemiel, who's the producer, feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two greatest mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you, it may shock you, it may even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such strain, now's your chance to, uh, well, we warned you. So, (laughs) you know, that's the opening of the movie, and it's delivered fairly earnestly. You know, it's not meant as a joke, and I think you have to consider the time when this came out. Uh, The movie probably cost a nickel to go see. 
mm-hmm. which you know at the time was not you know it's, it's not a nickel now. It was probably the equivalent of maybe a dollar now, uh, or maybe even a little more than that. But I think you know if you had enough money to do that, which a lot of people didn't because we were in the depression. But if you had enough money to do that, I think you'd give your children whatever a dime and send them to the movies. And they would spend quite a bit of time there because there'd be all sorts of coming attractions and shorts and newsreels and different things on there. Uh, but I don't know that you had necessarily had the ability to screen what they were watching. <laughs> so I think, you know, if you, if you sent people who were very, very skittish or if somebody very skittish went to the movies, this served as their warning to maybe, maybe they shouldn't be in this movie theater to see this. Unfortunately, it's, in that day and age, you couldn't just say, oh, it's a multiplex. I'll go see the movie that's next door to it. No. And also, I mean, to kind of set the stage, the horror genre, even when this movie came out, wasn't defined. There was no horror genre. These universal monster movies define the horror genre. And of course, it's extended from there. But you yeah. didn't know you were going into a movie of this type. No, absolutely not. I, I you know, I, I don't know how much they knew at all, because I think very frequently in that day and age, uh, you just go to the movies and whatever was playing, you'd see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you wouldn't even necessarily say, oh, I want to see that new Boris Karloff movie, you know, because I'm sure a lot of people didn't get the newspaper and there was no TV. Mm-mm. So there may not have really been any kind of advanced idea as to what they were going to see. So this could have been very shocking to a lot of people when they saw it. Pun intended? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, actually, no, but, uh, but pun, pun uh, understood. Uh, <laughs> the monster to me in my rewatching for this he he became the focus of my viewing and i really really like that he's he's not just a force of nature he's he's got a brain although abnormal uh and he's he's got a personality even it's and, a very childlike personality. Well, it's very childlike and it reminded me like as i'm watching it it made me think of like a pet you know, you you can get any breed of dog. I, I don't believe, although some people do, that any breed of dog is inherently vicious. Mm-mm. I think there are dogs who are more energetic and can be more easily trained to be vicious. But I don't think that they come out of the womb as vicious animals. I think they, you know, I don't think they're instinctually vicious. And I think, you know, whereas, say, a lion or a tiger might be different because they have more hunting instincts or whatever i think we've we've almost bred the instincts out of dogs as far as the viciousness goes so those those animals are effectively taught to be vicious and i think this monster is the same thing it comes out when when it 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 doesn't come out but when it comes to life it isn't vicious it isn't even really violent uh it's confused it's childlike and you see the different scenes as it's going on where he's put upon, you know, he's attacked, he's attacked mm-hmm. for no reason. And then he lashes out. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, possibly one of the most famous scenes in the movie is the, the scene with him and the little girl. And he, yes, he kills the little girl, but he doesn't do so out of, out of, as, as an act of violence. He does so out of curiosity. They're throwing flowers into the water and the, the flowers are floating. And he throws her into the water to see her float. Mm-hmm. It's it's an innocent act, although you know terrifying in its own way. And she drowns. He doesn't really he doesn't kill her with his bare hands. He throws her in the water and she drowns. Uh, 
One, one thing I did question is how the father knows the monster did it. Oh, true. That's just, <laughs> that's one of those leaps in storytelling logic that you have to accept. Yeah, because for, you know, anybody who hasn't seen this version of the of the film, uh, the, the father leaves the daughter while he goes to work and she wants him to stay and play with her. But he says, you know, you just stay here and be careful and I'll, I'll see you when I'm done at work. Uh, and she's probably, what, six, five, somewhere around there? Somewhere in there, yeah. And the monster comes along and she asks him to play with her and she takes him by the hand and they go by the water and they're throwing the flowers into the water and he's actually like you know laughing as this is going on he's getting such a kick out of it and then he takes her and he throws her in the water and then leaves uh later you see the father walking through town with his dead daughter draped in his arms you know looking for revenge so how the father knows what happened is beyond me they don't really give you that bridge scene to tell you, you know, what he did or didn't see or what evidence he had. I, you know, I don't know. He maybe saw big footprints. Maybe he saw the monster walking away. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, then they, they form into groups to go after the uh, monster. Actually, it's two separate groups. Henry Frankenstein has one and he has the other. And then they end up chasing the monster. And I don't want to take it further than that just yet. But well, you uh, mentioned... You know, the acts, he, he commits three murders in this movie, and which is kind of, it's pretty close to the actual kill count in the book, but he kills Fritz, who was his abuser. He kills and, and, and very, Fritz. very badly so, uh, just to throw yes. it in. Like, the, the, the killing of Fritz is fairly justified by the monster. Exactly. And uh, Edward Van Sloan's character, and these are both actors from Dracula, funny enough, playing close to the same roles, because Dwight Fry is playing a madman, but, but he, he kills the doctor who's about to kill him. These are self-defense. As you mentioned, the hunting instinct, there's, there's an instinct of, hey, this person's trying to hurt me or kill me. I need to act. The third one is the little girl, Maria. So none of these are unprovoked. Uh, the first two are unprovoked, but the third one is an innocent. Where in the book, the creature is definitely killing people to tick off Victor Frankenstein. Because he kills Frankenstein's younger brother, he kills his friend Henry, and then he kills his bride. So that's a huge marked difference, and it kind of makes the, the monster... Uh, almost compassion you you feel for the monster that he's just trying to do his thing and you know you've got these people chasing him with pitchforks by the end of the movie and and uh torches mm -hmm. and, and, and in fact like the when torches. they when they when they set off uh in in their posses to get him you know, the first thing they say is everybody light your torch <laughs> so they they you know they know that's his one uh weakness <laughs> excuse I me Fire bad, which is never said in the movie. Fire bad is never said in the movie. The monster does not speak, and that's that's a difference too from the book. Mm -hmm. In that you know the, the the monster in the book is far more intelligent, and and yeah. understands what's going on. And like you say, he's he's more calculating. We do see some of that in the movie when because he returns to Frankenstein's castle uh, and and actually torments his fiancee. But, which, if you look closely, and you have to look very closely and know what you're looking for, every now and then you'll see Boris Karloff's pinky twitch. And that's because May Clark was worried about being afraid of him in the makeup. He's like, I'll just twitch this so you know it's me. And you, you most of, it's most of the time off camera. Every now and then you'll see a little twitch. That's interesting. I did not know that. Well, in, in the little girl, <laughs> mm -hmm. just, just to tell you who Karloff was, they were worried that when she came, you know, when she saw the monster, she's going to be scared. No, she ran right up to him, grabbed his hands, like, can I ride with you? And Boris Karloff, being Karloff, said, would you, darling? <laughs> it's just, that's, Karloff's a big teddy bear, and you put him in this, and he's terrifying. But, you know, I think there's a little depth to the scene with the, with the fiancé, too, though. 
because he gets himself into a situation where he's alone in the room with her, mm-hmm. and he doesn't kill her. No. In which, fact, it doesn't even look like he's trying to hurt her. He's trying to understand what he's seeing. Yeah, that's that's kind of, I, I, you know, I think we're seeing a little bit of the torment of the, of the monster in that he doesn't understand where he fits in the world. And he's trying well, to work it out somehow. Yeah, if Henry's the father, this would be his mother. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this, you know, I, I keep going back to the fact that it's only 71 minutes long, but I also want to go back to, you know, storytelling in the movies was, as a general rule, more simple mm-hmm. in the early days of film. I, I don't think they had quite as many in-depth characters. I think they, they worked a lot more with the, we're going to present a character to you and you understand who he is right from the start. And then we'll work a story around him. I, I don't think they went that much into characterization and motivation uh, beyond stereotypes of a lot of characters. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie is showing us, at least with the monster, a lot of underlying thought process of what's going through its head. And actually, as as you said, you know, because of... Uh, the way it is in the book, it's almost like they they make the character more layered than he is in the book. Um, to some extent, a different set of layers, but yeah. Oh, very different. Yeah, he's 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 realistically he's less monster like in the movie than he is in the book. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Because in the book, he's very much he's very much out to make Victor Frankenstein's life hell until he gets what he wants. It's kind of about abandonment in the book. With this, it's about trying to. It's about more about absolute rejection and not fitting in. Yeah, and I think he's... in The Bride of Frankenstein, you see a little bit more of the character being more like in the movie. I mean, in the book, rather. Yeah, uh, a little bit, yeah. They change it a little bit around, and you know, maybe we'll get to that one at some point. But right now, uh, I, I want to stick with this one. And I think he's presented as more of a tragic figure in the movie than he was in the book. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's one of those, you know, it's... It, it, I think it's one of the things, you know, as a parent, uh, that always comes to mind where you start considering the possibility of, you know, your children saying to you, well, I never asked to be born. Uh, you know, which thank God my kids haven't said that. <laughs> uh, but, but I think it's something that crosses your mind as a parent is, you know, did, did you do right by them? Should, should you even have even brought them into the world and subjected them to, you know, when, when, when bad things happen, I think that crosses your mind. Like maybe, maybe you should have gone through life without having kids. Uh, and I think, you know, Victor, uh, Victor, sorry, Henry is effectively the monster's father. And this is an instance where he shouldn't have brought him into the world. No, I mean, it's, he didn't bring him in the world the way a child is brought to the world. He took something that had had its chance to use a Jurassic Park reference again and had expired. And he's reanimating that. That's a dangerous concept. <laughs> Very dangerous. Now, his, his plan is a little better until Fritz brings him an abnormal criminal brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not really built upon in this movie. No, because he, he doesn't come across as the criminal, other, no. other than there, there was a damage to it to some extent. Yeah, I mean, effectively, the monster is, is as we've said, is an innocent. He's, he's not malicious. Now, if he were presented in the movie as being malicious, then you kind of understand, okay, it's a criminal brain, and there's something that compels it to behave that way. Uh, and, and you have to wonder, had they... Take had had Fritz not been startled by lightning and dropped the normal brain, which is I again I just think of young Frankenstein I can't help it 
because I did, <laughs> you know, I've seen that more times than this. Uh, but had he not done that and had they put the normal brain in, which I don't think is as simple as taking a brain and just sticking it into the skull cavity. No. I, th- I think it's a little bit more complex than what we get here. Anyway, uh, had they done that, <laughs> would he have been animated and immediately articulate and intelligent? Or would he have still been reanimated as a childlike creature? Well, it becomes a question of nature versus nurture, which is another <laughs> another great question This is that's put on the table with this film. But would, would the brain, my thought, my question is, would the brain have retained the knowledge that it had, had it not been an abnormal brain? Like, you know, if effectively, if I were to die and somebody to take my brain and put it into this creature's body and then animate it, would I, would it be me in that creature's body or, or just be the, I, would it be just my brain material. that would have to be reeducated? Yeah. Because I mean, that's... With, the, with the abnormal brain, this, the feeling is the way it presents in the movie is it has to be mostly educated. There's some residual abilities that, you know, it's able to walk already. It's able to kind of comprehend things that people are saying to some extent, but it's very rudimentary knowledge. It doesn't have sophisticated knowledge that you would think someone who lived their life would, whether criminal or otherwise. You know, when you put that question on the table, it makes the scene where the, the creature's reaching for the light, where Henry opens up the, the, the uh, skylight and the creature's reaching for the light, makes you wonder if that's the prisoner, the killer inside, reaching for freedom. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Or if it's just, you know, a simplistic brain like, ooh, light pretty. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. And they don't really give you answers. And I don't think it's a I don't think it's a shortcoming of the movie. I think it's it's Mm-mm. a good thing because it makes you really start contemplating it. Uh, but you know, again, you know, like if they had had the normal brain, you know, would it, would it have just been reanimated as a sophisticated, intelligent person? I don't I know. don't know, because it seems like the brain is just raw material. Because once the brain is brain dead, I mean, there might be a little res- residue, but I don't think anything would be left. There's no electrodes going on in there. It strikes me as the answer, and, and I think it's subject to interpretation. People could have their own answers. But mm-hmm. the way I accept it is uh, it, it, it is effectively wiped clean. It's almost like you take a hard drive and wipe it, but there's still some residual things in there. Yeah. Uh, and again, like I said, it's already got the ability to walk and to kind of comprehend some things. But for the most part, its experiences and its knowledge are gone. And I think in either brain you would be dealing with that. Uh, just with the criminally insane brain, you're more likely to have a situation where he lashes out, which he eventually does at the end of the movie. And well, after after being abused, I mean, he was is, is the is the creature the victim? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, the villain of this movie is Henry. Almost oh, certainly, and and it always bothered me. Well, we'll talk about the ending when we get there. But yeah, I, I think you know he's the one who. You know, to put it in simple terms, he overstepped his bounds. Yeah. So, and he he subjected this fairly innocent creature to what it was subjected to. He he let it be put in a situation where his idiot of a, an assistant was torturing it, and Fritz certainly des- deserved the ending he got the way he was acting. Yeah. So you know, you didn't feel bad for Fritz when he bought it. No, not at all. But it's you know, <laughs> and and frankly, I I didn't feel bad for. Uh, for Henry, when he you know, we're talking about the ending a little bit, when he <laughs> uh, when he hit that windmill, uh, it's like yeah, good for you, serves you right. Yeah, but it, I think I think I really want to. Uh, this this is such a beautifully shot movie. 
is is the more I the more I thought about it this time, the more I'm like, wow, the castle sets are beautiful and they're well lit, they're well shot. Whale really got into the talkies better than Todd Browning did. Mm-hmm. James Whale, who directed this, just does a masterful job of setting scenes, and that that does like about sixty percent of your work. You know, when you're doing an atmospheric horror movie, and just the the, the small shots, like when when the monster wakes up and Edward Van Sloan's over him and his eyes just kind of flutter. Just right. the quietness of that actually makes it scarier, where it worked against Dracula in some cases. Well, Dracula, there's too many scenes, and I guess we're, we're wandering a little bit here, but Dracula, there's too many scenes where it's a close-up of his eyes, mm-hmm. and the camera lingers and lingers and lingers. Yeah. I understand he had expressive eyes. I understand the, the character of Dracula is supposed to be able to kind of mesmerize you by staring at, into your eyes and kind of you know put you into a trance of sorts, but... I don't know that that was the most effective way to show it. No. And again, that's Todd Browning coming from silent movies where that would be the norm. And James Will also coming from that, but also adapting better and using his actors a lot better, I think. Even though Boris Karloff wasn't invited to the premiere because he, was, he wasn't considered enough of a, a star. That's changed by the time you get to Bride of Frankenstein, by the way. Well, eventually, you know, both Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi were considered to be kind of the royalty of the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, along with, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, and I think Lon Chaney Jr. deserves a little bit more accolades, but again, we're wandering. As do I. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I'll, I'll give you a sneak preview if we ever get to it, is of all the Universal Horror movies, The uh, the Wolfman is my favorite. I lean towards, actually I lean towards Bride of Frankenstein, but yeah, Wolfman's way up there. Unless, unless we include the Abbott and Costello meet the Frank meet Frank, <laughs> which, to be honest with you, if I'm ranking them all, that's my favorite. <laughs> that's fair. So, uh, you know, this I'm trying to think of like what else to hit on in this. Well, we should uh, talk about the makeup effects. The, the, I mean, this was well before Star Wars. There were no special effects houses or true. makeup houses, and the way. That they made this guy look like an actual reanimated corpse has informed every Frankenstein ever since, with with exceptions, of course. But if and you the, look at Frankenstein with the flathead and the electrodes, you're looking at Jack Pierce's makeup design for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and it, it is as as we were saying earlier, it is my preferred version by a long shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's there's the the various different incarnations of the character that have come up over the years. Uh, many of which are more true to the way it's presented in the book. But this this is the one, you know, if you mention the Frankenstein monster to me, this is the one I'm going to think of. And there are yeah. some people, just by the way, who are very offended uh, if you call the monster Frankenstein because, you know, the, the monster is the monster and either Victor or Henry is Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't really get as bothered by that. When people say, oh, look, it's Frankenstein, and you look over and you see the monster, I don't, I don't necessarily feel the the compelled to correct them i I don't yeah i agree because and especially having seen the the franchise it's something i've let go a long time ago because it does become moot at one point yeah i i I, you know how how i've i've come to grips with it in my mind is in my mind the monster is the child of the Mm -hmm. doctor therefore his name is the same and you can call him frankenstein it's a family name it should be at least yeah exactly that's how i see it uh, so it, it, that doesn't bother me, but I know that is a pet peeve many people have. Uh, just just moving on a little bit, trying to think of anything else to hit on. Uh, 
who, who have we got here? Well, we've got the ending. Yeah. So if we're getting towards that. I guess it's so. all they changed their mind is what they did. And Henry was supposed to probably rightfully die at the windmill. Yet at the end, he's recovering with his fiance by him, and the Baron has the the drink. That always bothers me because that means Henry got away with everything. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I don't think they put these things up for test audiences back then, but it, it almost screams of that kind of thing where he does die at the end. They they ran it for a test audience. The audience didn't like the way it ended, and then they added the scene to show he's still alive. That's actually exactly that, what happened. That's well, actually what happened. <laughs> well, what, what I was thinking, and, and I was speculating in my mind, what I was thinking is that, uh, what I was thinking is that not a test screening, but maybe like some, some like producers or whatever watched it and that happened. Yeah. As it was opposed a, to, you know, what they do nowadays. Yeah. It's a little, not, yeah, not the test screening as we define it today, but yeah, that's exactly what happened with that. They they didn't like the ending and it's, it wouldn't go over well. I mean, it was banned in Kansas, so this this movie was two live crew before two live crew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was movie was contraband. Yeah, this this is. I mean, this at, at the time this came out, this is pretty pretty controversial, uh, but it was a big hit. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a one sheet, a poster for this movie that there weren't all that many, and it's one of the most collectible movie memorabilia in the world. So it's 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 more than left its mark. Right. Well, it it was made on a budget of, and we're talking 1931 release, two hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars, which at that time I think is a pretty significant budget. Mm-hmm. Very. Uh, you know, that's that's probably the 1931 version of you know Avengers: Infinity War, uh, and it. But in the box office, it made twelve million. And I yes, assume this did. is all co- according to Box Office Mojo. I'm getting it off of Wikipedia, but they usually quote their numbers from there. Um, so it, it made was this some almost 50 times its budget. Yeah, yeah that, that's that's fairly significant. This was uh, the Avengers: Infinity War of 1931. That's the perfect way to put it. Yeah, I, I, I and you know when you when you consider that with the controversy. Or not the controversy, the controversial themes and uh, you know topics that come in up, and you know, knowing that a large part of your audience is young people in that in those days, which I guess in these days too. But uh, I, th- I think things have skewed a little older now than they were then. Um, you know, I think the the older people back then were too busy working and doing stuff that you know the, the children were more likely to be the ones going to the movies. Uh, you know, I, I think this is this is very very groundbreaking, not only from a storytelling point of view, which it sets you know it it sets a lot of the standards for horror movies uh, to this very day, but I think it's also groundbreaking on the studio being willing to take a chance. Well, and that yeah, you're absolutely right because Carla Mill Jr. was the one that was wanting to get back into creating movies like this one, exciting movies, different movies. And in the same year, I mean, you got Dracula and Frankenstein, both big hits. And yeah, they were both big risks, but they paid off. And that's because you had the younger, younger blood coming in and saying, let's do something different. And it, you know, it definitely paid in dividends. Oh, absolutely. So the question before us, as always, is all of those things are true. And I don't think they're even debatable. But the question is, is it yours? I'm gonna. Let, uh, why don't you go first? I got. I've been mulling over this for a couple of days now, and I'm not quite settled. I have two, and I'm. I think we're in in a similar area on it, uh, because if this was 1932, 
there would be absolutely no question it's yours. We'd be doing a podcast called Is It Frankenstein? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, there, there's no doubt in my mind. The shortcomings of this movie are due to the abilities of filmmaking at the time, in my opinion. It's, it's not so much a lack of imagination, lack of quality acting, or lack of good direction. I think it's a lack of technology mm-hmm. that create the shortcomings of this movie. So if you're a person who's sitting here and saying, I can't stand black and white movies, I'm going to tell you now, you're not going to enjoy this. Yeah. It's just, just not your, not going to be your thing. If you're a fan of movies in general and movies history and being able to watch something and being able to place it in the context of the limitations of when it was made. And, and that's, that's the only, the only thing I want you to give it is the limitate, you know, just acknowledging its limitations as far as their ability to make it. Uh, I would not give those same acknowledgements to a lack of imagination or lack of acting or lack of story. Uh, just, just filmmaking limitations, you know, special effects. When you consider it in that context, and, and as you mentioned, the makeup is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the scenes, you know, the, the different studio scenes and the different backgrounds are all really well done. The mob scenes are well done. It, it, it expands on what they had the ability to do at that time for the most part. I think it really did break a lot of ground. Then you take it further and you consider the characterization in particular, Henry and the monster. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a depth there that we were talking about. Uh, the direction I think is, is really well done. I think it's paced well. It moves along. It's, it, it, I think again, 71 minutes, it had to move along. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say it's a Jaws with an asterisk and the asterisk is the limitations of filmmaking of 1931, but that's the only asterisk I'm giving it. Otherwise I'm going to say, yes, this, this started a trend, this created a phenomena, you know, yes, we had Dracula before this, but I don't feel that. I personally don't feel Dracula is the movie that this is. I think the character is every bit as exciting. I don't think the movie is. Uh, so I'm going to say this is the one that really got the ball rolling, even though it was second. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say, yes, it is Jaws. And I put my little asterisk next to it. I think I'm almost right there. I put it, instead of an asterisk, I put it at the low end of Jaws. I mean, close to a Jaws 2, because I think, little spoiler, I think the sequel is a little bit better than this. But I'm trying to think if it's if it's better because of the the more technology they had. So I will I will put it as Jaws, but at the lower end of the spectrum. Still okay. beautiful. Still, I will watch this time and time again after this. And like I said, I have Boris Karloff on my desk all the time, so you can pretty well bet I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. And and just just to kind of talk about the scale a little bit on that. And I think you hit it on the head, and I'm certainly not criticizing your take on it because I think you did it exactly what I'm you you did exactly what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes we have a tendency to say, well, if The Bride of Frankenstein is better than Frankenstein, I can't rate this as Jaws because Bride of Frankenstein will be Jaws, so this has to be Jaws too. But then what do you do, say, with the Star Wars, where there's more than, you know, we only have four spots on the scale. So when you have, <laughs> when you have six movies or now eight movies, obviously certain, certain levels are going to have doubles or triples or whatever. And therefore... You, can, you know, anybody who looks at it and says, well, how could this be Jaws if, if that one was better than it? There's going to be room for for 
ranking them within the scale if that if he was so inclined to do so and i think that's exactly what dave just did is he's saying they're both jaws even though i feel one is superior to the other so like i said i'm not criticizing you at all because i totally agree with what you did i'm just trying to explain it from anybody who might be you know not considering the fact that there are going to be variations in quality within the four groups Mm -hmm. so next time out that you were on we have a plethora of choices now Yes, we do. <laughs> we do. With Holly, we do the Harry Potter movies. We've already done Jurassic Park, which has a multiple sequel situation. We've done Back to the Future, where we have two sequels that we will definitely have to get to. We have this, which has an incredible number of sequels or uh, different types of progeny. Uh, and then there's always the chance that we just say the hell with all of those and we pick some other movie. <laughs> so, you know, we have a lot on your on your plate. Luckily, it's a big plate. (laughs) There you go. Thanks for coming on, Dave. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And I I wonder if the listeners notice a theme with some of the movies we've picked that you just listed. I'm not going to call it out, but I I wonder if they notice. (laughs) I certainly can point to one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, leave it to everybody else to to think about that. Um, I could use iTunes reviews. Those are always cool to get if anybody is so inclined. Uh, Also, if you have any interest in commenting on our review commenting on movies you'd like to see covered, anything of that nature, the email is jawspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. You stay here, Maria. I'll just take a look at my traps. Now we'll go to village and have a grand time, huh? <laughs> you won't be long, Daddy. Oh, no, no. Franz goes by, tell him I'll be back soon. Hmm? Daddy, won't you stay and play with me a little while? I'm too busy, darling. You stay and play with the kitty, huh? Bye, Daddy. Goodbye. Be a good girl now. Come on, kitty. Who are you? I'm Maria. Will you play with me? Would you like one of my flowers? You have those, and I'll have these. I can make a boat. See how mine floats? Woo! <laughs>